0: This is the Danger Close podcast. Beyond the books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original, presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Julian Radmeyer. Julian is the author of Killing for Profit about the illicit trade of rhino horn and is an investigative journalist and currently is the director of the Organized Crime Observatory for East and Southern Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Fascinating guy, amazing book. Love talking to him. Hope we can meet up in person one of these days. And now, without further ado, Julian Rademeyer. I'm so excited that, uh, that we're getting to do this. So thank you for taking the time. I'm,
1: no, thank you. Uh, it's, it's been great since that Instagram post a couple of years back. Uh, that's right. yeah, been, and you were over here back then, I think.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think I was just getting back from, uh, from one of my trips. Uh, but one of them was specific to help train up an, an anti-poaching unit, do as much as yeah. I could anyway. Um, and it was fascinating because I learned so much more from them than, than they learned from me. Uh, yeah. they were just, Transitioning from the weapons they'd been using to some new ones that I had a, some, a background with, so just kind of helping them there. But uh, their their backgrounds and their stories and uh, yeah. their lives were the most fascinating part of that that trip for me. And I mean, they've, they've stayed with me, and they were all older. That's what really got me is those some of those guys that were so much old. I mean, mm. a lot of them were really old. Uh, they yeah. caught like the bush wars, tail end of the bush wars, and mm. and they'd worked for what whatever the the um, what national police force called. What in America we call like a CSI crime scene investigation? Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah f- f- uh, so they've done that, and then uh, they gotten scooped up by some of these uh, private anti-poaching concessions out there. Mm. So th- their backgrounds were were fascinating, but yours is too. That's why I, I kind of want to start with that. Like, okay. how did you? Uh, what was your path into to journalism? Uh, was it something you always wanted to do? Or did you study it in school? Or how did it? How did you? Uh, how did you get get to your essentially? Your foot in the yeah. door and start down that path as a journalist.
1: Yeah, I think I it was a weird thing. So I kind of grew up in South Africa in the 1980s. I was born in the 70s, kind of showing my age a bit, but um, <laughs> grew up in grew up in the 1980s, and you know there was there was so much turmoil, there was so much change happening. You know, 1985 was was a particularly crazy year in South Africa. Um, you know, a lot of protest action going on, massive clampdowns from the military, and then as I, you know, as I moved into into my final school years, you have got the um, the beginnings of change. So you've got the release of Nelson Mandela. Um, you've got these winds of change blowing through not only South Africa but through the world. Um, so you you saw the you know the wall coming down. Um, you know all these seismic kind of changes and i I kind of I'd grown up in a family that had a my dad was a history teacher um, who had this sort of you know obsession with with history with telling stories um, and that stuck with me and it, you know I'd, I'd watched a lot of some of the very courageous reporting that had happened in South Africa uh, in the 1980s in very difficult circumstances. Um, and I aspired to to do that kind of thing, you know. It's um, and there were a lot of reporters. We went through, you know, a really bad patch in the in obviously in the 80s, but then also in the early 90s, and those beginning days of democracy, where ultimately it was a was a, a small civil war raging in the country, um, a lot of violence, a lot of killing, um, and reporters who put themselves out there to to tell those stories. So that for me was really inspiration. You know, trying to trying to get those stories down. Um, and it grew from there. So I kind of left high school, sort of bumming around, trying to get a job, knocking on reporters' doors, and irritating them. Um, and eventually, this guy um, took a bit of a shine to me, gave me, you know, a job, paid me like a hundred bucks a month, and uh, you know, to pack files. Um, but ultimately, he ended up, you know, I ended up writing stories and and filing some of those stories with his help. And it moved from there, so becoming a freelancer and then moving into the newspaper industry, and and from there,
0: yeah. Okay, so were you? So you started off? Is it called freelance, independent journalist, just working for different news organizations, and then coming on as a, a staff reporter at certain uh, yeah, yeah, news yeah. organizations? Is that uh, is that was that your path?
1: Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, back then it was kind of um, get a foot in the door, um, see, you know, whatever options you could get. Um, I mean, the nice thing, I struck it really lucky. So Reuters news agency, which you know is one of the biggest news agencies in the world back then, um, there was so much going on that their correspondent in South Africa could only focus on some stuff. And uh, she took a liking to me, reckoned that you know, I could potentially do some of this job. So I got a bit of a, um, an in there covering some of the stuff around uh, police death squads that have been operating in the 1980s. Uh, some of the you know some of the more extremist stuff that was happening around the fringes in those in those early uh, days of democracy um, and then ultimately ended up in a in working in four four newspapers being employed by newspapers and starting at the bottom like most journalists used to back then mm-hmm. yeah you, know, you start off covering local government stuff the courts you become you know the sort of guy that lurks around in courtrooms uh yeah, constantly covering those cases and eventually build up, you know, doing a bit of politics. And then ultimately, um, it led to me doing investigations and working, uh, for an investigative unit, um, which took me in the path of looking at things like rhino poaching and organized crime.
0: Yeah. And did you, so in the nineties, when all, all these changes are, are coming about, um, as a journalist, were you, uh, did you ever feel, a? uh, you were in danger because of your your reporting out there from different entities of the government or different supporters of different factions or that mm-hmm. sort of a thing um, how dangerous was it for uh, to be a journalist back then
1: look i think i think for journalists in south Africa and maybe maybe our risk threshold is a bit higher than you know than in some places where uh you know we, we live in a country where change is constant and where um, violence and violent protests are you know a fact of life um we have extremely high levels of crime in south africa you know very high levels of violent crime um so they're, they're risks that you you take but they're risks that you try and deal with and you try and ameliorate and find ways of 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 handling those risks as best as you possibly can so you know covering gang violence covering uh political protests um you know, you you do find yourselves in situation, particularly when you're young and stupid. You do you know, crazy things like yeah. going between sort of two groups of of protesters and police on one side, and trying to get the most dramatic picture, which leads to you, you know, leads to you being sort of shot with rubber bullets or tear gassed or whatever. Yeah, um, and it kind of you know it's kind of it was a badge of honor in those days for for reporters who were coming up, but there was. There were, I mean, there were real risks involved. I mean, there were a number of, of photographers, particularly in the early 80s, uh, who lost their lives. Um, Ken Westerbrook, who was a particularly famous African photographer, incredible, incredible photographer, um, who was killed in uh, in clashes between uh, it was the National Peacekeeping Force who were trying to bring peace to township areas around South Africa. Um, you know, he got hit by a stray bullet. Um and there's a generation of photographers who grew out of that, that particular period who became conflict photographers around the world. You know, someone like Charles Silver, who uh, is probably one of the best conflict photographers on the planet, worked for the New York Times uh, for many years, still does. Um, sadly, uh, lost his legs in a landmine explosion in Afghanistan, but continues to shoot, you know, and has been through and has documented um. You know, what what veterans have been through has documented all sides of that conflict. So there were people back then who you know, became that sort of breeding ground, um, particularly in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, which was a little bit before my time as a reporter
0: yeah, did you ever feel that you were targeted because of what you're reporting? like uh, outside of, say, going in to do the actual reporting, but hey, mm. at home, going just doing around your your normal life outside of the the profession, but hey, someone doesn't like what you're reporting on. This person needs to disappear. Was that ever something that you thought about? Yeah, I mean, it's
1: you know again, it's a risk. I mean, there are a lot of people who threaten, and my my general sort of feeling about that is that people who threaten are invariably trying to intimidate the the unlikely to really take it much further. I mean, that's some that potentially might not go the whole way, but it's the guys who don't threaten. And I've had one or two cases there. You know, One guy was an arms dealer that I'd done some early reporting on, um, a siphon guy who ended up in the Philippines being based there running uh, a drug operation, running weapons smuggling operations, um, who at one stage hired, thankfully, the probably the world's worst hitman to take a hit off. <laughs> Really? um which was yeah and no, I mean they were terrible um <laughs> and they they, <laughs> what kinda, do they, do? they No well they were the one guy was an ex cop um actually they were both ex cops but the one guy had a drug habit um the other guy had a marriage that was falling apart and it was just it was a complete mess so ultimately he was probably more likely to shoot his wife's new boyfriend than anyone else <laughs> Um, and they kind of never really got to the point, they talked about it a lot, but they never really got to the point of, of doing anything. And they talked about it in the front of police, you know, in front of police informants, uh, which is, I I eventually found out about this kind of thing. Um, so that probably was the biggest sort of close call in a way. And I mean, this was a guy who was he was quite dangerous. Um, he's been linked to a number of murders. He, he almost gamified murders in a way you know he for him he'd hire someone to go off and, and kill someone it meant nothing to him because it was kind of you know this guy is irritating me let me take them out i mean to the point where um his estate agent in the philippines he felt that he'd been screwed over on a housing deal and she was killed by by hitman that he hired Jeez. um it was a really crazy story he's currently uh, in u.s custody he was arrested uh, a couple of years ago by the dea uh, in Sierra Leone, and effectively taken back to the US, and has become something of a cooperating witness on on cases there, and his whole network has essentially unravelled. But he, you know, he was he was quite a ruthless guy to the point where he'd pull um, military veterans, US military veterans, into his wake and hire them to do jobs for him, you know, and exploit these guys, and ultimately, in some cases, they ended up carrying the can for, for, you know, some of his activities.
0: Jeez, you've met uh, quite the cast of characters over your, uh, your time in, in journalism. And you talk about yeah. a lot of them in, in here, just in this, uh, just in this book. I mean, there's so many stories in here and, uh, I mean, the writing is fantastic in here, but, um, there a couple Thank of times you, you talk you referenced some things that you did, uh, unrelated to, uh, to your investigation into, to, to Rhino or just a, a touch point or, uh, that kind of comes to the edge of it. Like the, uh, what do you, what do you call the um, uh, the syndicates or the 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 tactic where um, these uh, armored cars get hit and, and sometimes very sophisticated, very violent uh, means mm. with uh, IEDs used to blow these things up and blow the doors, kill everybody involved, grabbing it. Like what are the, what are those called in South Africa? They're very uh, popular cash, for a cash while. And,
1: cash and transit heists.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, we don't they, see it as much here in the in the states, and they get you see a lot of it though. And is it still something that uh, that goes on in South Africa?
1: Yeah, sadly, it's kind of it's coming back, um, mm-hmm. and because it's Christmas season, it's coming back with a vengeance. Uh, this this is the time of year when that happens. Um, yeah, look, crime-wise, we're a pretty wild country. I mean, we yeah. have serious, worrying levels of violent crime. We have a police force that has been utterly corrupted by by years of you know, maladministration. Mal- abuse. We have intelligence agencies which simply can't function, which have been become political tools. Um, and we've kind of lost the handle. I mean, if you if you look in the early days, um, sort of when Cash and Transit Heights were really first becoming their thing in the 1990s, sort of mid, I don't know, probably a bit later, late 1990s to early 2000s, the police were really good at at getting intelligence at trying to you know target that. We had the the police task force, uh, which was an elite special forces type unit within the police. Um, you know they were trained for for hostage negotiation, they were t- trained for rapid response incidents, who um, really kind of went in there they were extremely professional and they cracked down hard, and these syndicates got hammered. Um, and what's interesting, and something I touch on in the book, is that some of those syndicates, because cash and transit became so difficult to to carry out, because there was so much attention on it, because you you know you were constantly um, having to face these risks of, of very heavily armed police, helicopters, you know, the, the whole thing. Um, guys started moving to softer crimes like rhino poaching. Some of those, some of those syndicates. Um, and you know it was kind of this displacement effect. We we now at the you know situation where we've got cash and transit gangs coming back. Uh, you know you'll have guys in a couple of fast cars. I mean there've been shootouts involving gangs of thirty guys on the highways um, where they'll block a, a vehicle carrying cash, cash carrying vehicle. Um, you know there'll be a shootout. There were. I mean I think these days there's probably. It's still very violent, but fewer people get killed. Um, but you see, but you know, there were ca- I mean horrific cases where they'd burn guys out of cash vans. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they'd um, get hold of explosives from from the mining industry. That's that's a common source for for explosives that are used in these things. And these are very sophisticated, very well armed gangs. Uh, AK 47s um, and you know sometimes quite quite high explosives. Um, they know what they're doing. They're very professional, and and they go out and do it. And that extends currently into the mining industry. We now have, in the last couple of years, we've had a rash of incidents where guys are forcing their ways into uh, smelters, gold smelters, um, crashing through fences and armored vehicles, taking out security, um, you know, grabbing as much gold as they can and getting out there. So it's an ongoing thing. So these violent gangs, and look, it's I guess it's in some ways. You know, if you look at South Africa, and that's a country where there's almost fifty percent unemployment. Um, you know, you you looking at a high level of people who are out there. What you know, how do you how do you make a living? And illicit economies is is, is many cases where you go. South Africa's always been so fascinating uh, to me the, the entire entire history.
0: Um, but be- before you started writing this book. Did you have a, hmm. do you have a, and, and by the way, are you going to write some more books because the is, it, your writing is incredible. It reads like a spy novel and there's so many Thank other you. things I want to go deeper into like the uh, David Sterling and the SAS and all that yeah, stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. that involvement in here. But um, uh, do you have plans for, for other books in the future? Are you working on? I on do. Anything?
1: Yeah. I've, I, I'm bouncing a couple of ideas right now. I mean, it's, it's, be, it's been a while since that one came out and I've sort of, um, I mean, you've been there, you, you know, you've written, uh, you've written five, five books so far, That's I right. think. Yeah, fifth uh, one comes next out one here coming in May. out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um oh, thank you. Uh, but you kind of know that the horror of that process and locking yourself away and kind of writing it out. And um yeah, it took, I mean, it it took a lot of research to go into that particular book. And I've been I've been sort of hunting for, I don't think I've I really necessarily have the talent for fiction, but uh in terms of nonfiction and research and so on, I've been looking for you know the right story to tell. Um, and I've got a couple of ideas and I'm bouncing around now. So I think I'm sort of ready for for the second one, which hopefully we'll get going soon. Well, I hope so, because um, I've been
0: following and I'm like, when's yeah. he gonna announce that his next book is coming out? Because <laughs> I want more. And anybody that reads this, uh, you know, everybody should read this, Killing for Profit. It's fascinating. Um, but uh is gonna want to read more of what uh what what you have to to offer. And uh, you, yeah. I, I wanna read one part here because uh one there's a couple parts I wanna wanna read, but this is uh kind of the impetus for starting this book. Uh, and you say, quite by chance, I came across the story of a South african a farm, uh, a a farm attack and rifles being smuggled across the border into Zimbabwe to be used to kill rhinos for their horns. I was intrigued, I wanted to know more, and so I dug, and the more I dug, the more I unearthed, and the more horrific I became, Horrified at the tales of ruthless criminal enterprises on a scale that I could not have imagined. What follows is the true story of poachers, killers, pimps, soldiers, generals, assassins, mercenaries, conmen, prostitutes, gun runners. Game farmers, corrupt politicians, diplomats, and scoundrels. It is also the story of one of South Africa's most precious assets—an animal that has been around for for fifty million years. This is the rhino's last stand, one that tragically they may not survive. I mean, it's great writing, and that just—I mean, who's not going to want to turn that page? Um, So, so, uh, so. You do the audiobook. I'm not going to give you Ray Porter's number. He's fantastic. Uh, uh, he does mine. Um, but, uh, that was, so that was the, the, the impetus to start going down this path and write a book. Like, when did you decide this was not going to be a, an article or a series of articles, but it was going to be a book?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, the rhino trade. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing people don't really associate Poaching rhino horns, that kind of thing with with organized crime, or these, these kinds of characters. Um, so I started with that story, and it was this, you know, this guy, Johan Ruers, who was sort of a petty con man, uh, slash game farmer, slash poacher. He'd been convicted many times since the 1980s for poaching. And you know, he was smuggling these weapons across into the border, across the border into Zimbabwe and supplying them to um, a gang of of zebra poachers. You know, these guys were poaching zebras, selling the skins. Not really a big deal, but then they morphed into this rhino poaching gang. And it was around the time we can come to that later. But when this market was really opening up in in, uh, in Vietnam, um, and the, a couple of these rifles were intercepted, and and one of them, the serial numbers had to removed. So I managed to through contacts in Zimbabwe. Get hold the serial number, run it on this side. And it turned out that, that that rifle had been stolen in an attack on a farm, an elderly couple living on a farm uh, in South Africa. Farm attacks are, are unfortunately a big problem here. You know, you've got rural communities living in quite isolated areas with without the necessary police support. Um, and these guys were effectively his neighbours, and ultimately became even closer neighbours after the attack when they moved to town for for better safety and moved basically into a house around the corner from. Uh, but he'd orchestrated, it seemed, this attack and getting these rifles, and the rifles were then shipped out. So you know that story in itself was quite fascinating. But then it moved on, and the stories just kept kept getting wilder and wilder. You know, you had a Thai Laotian syndicate who were recruiting strippers and sex workers to pose as hunters um, so that they could exploit, you know, loopholes in, in hunting legislation. You had North Korean spies. This is now after the book came out. You were moving um, horn through Mozambique into South Africa, taking it out in diplomatic pouches. Um, you had these old historical stories, which you mentioned, you know, David Sterling, the SAS. Um, and, you know, this quite wild sort of idea back then to kind of tackle rhino poaching syndicates in Africa um so there were these characters and these these amazing stories which um you know and I knew very little about it when i when i first started looking at it um you know rhino poaching was this kind of thing that was happening on the periphery the numbers were going up but back then it was you know 122 rhinos have been poached so it wasn't hmm. it wasn't what it became where you suddenly started losing over a thousand a year and we're now sitting in a position where You've got uh, ten thousand rhinos in South Africa. In Africa, that have been poached more than ten thousand, close to eleven thousand. And you know, South Africa being the country with the largest rhino population in the world, now facing this this massive, um, you know, onslaught. and you know over the last decade the krüger national park was the, which i'm I, i'm not sure if you've been there but um yeah. you know it's 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 the crown jewel of of our yeah. national parks in south africa um we, and it's it's the the last uh sort of the last standing ground for for south africa's rhino population losing 70% of their rhinos in the course of a decade um you know so so it became this really thing I And mean, there's this life and death thing where you've got people People who prepared to kill and actually die for a couple of kilograms of rhino horn. And that's what I wanted to, to really understand is what is driving people to go out there and, you know, want to shoot a rhino, get that horn out of a national park. You know, massive risks. You can be, I mean, the guys have been trampled to death. Poachers have been trampled to death by elephants, taken by lions, um, you know, the, all of those kinds of elements. So what are the drivers? What's, what's motivating all of this? Yep. And I want to ask you a little bit more
0: about what rhino horn is here um, in one, one second here. Um, and I'm going to read this to give a people a little bit of background. Uh, Perhaps the greatest irony is that rhinos are being killed for the very things that evolved to offer them a means of defense. On the black markets of Southeast Asia, rhino horn is worth more per kilogram than gold, cocaine, platinum, or heroin. It is a product that people are prepared to kill and die for. In Vietnam it has become a party drug for the wealthy and a panacea for the very sick. And yet, it offers no real scientific benefits. Its value is artificial, founded on myth and propagated by greed. Man, so what is the? Is it is rhino horn? What your your fingernail is made out of, and how did it become so valuable? Uh, Hmm. these myths that have just grown, I guess, over the years, um, how did it become so valuable? Uh, what is it? And then I have a, a slew of questions about how this cycle works and how that guy ends up in the field with a rifle, killing that rhino and how, what that trail looks like all the way back to Asia. Hmm. But, uh, but what is rhino and why is it so rhino horn and what is, why is it so valuable?
1: So, so rhino horn has been traded for for thousands of years um, in China. It's been used for thousands of years. It was until fairly recently, um, and there's some dispute about how that's been changed. But it was until till fairly recently in uh, the sort of Chinese materia medica, the, the traditional medicine um, texts that that underpin uh, traditional Chinese medicine, and. By extension, because China had, um, had conquered Vietnam and had moved into Vietnam, it became the, the basis for, for traditional Vietnamese medicine. Um, so for thousands of years, people have been using rhino horn for a range of things, including you know, chasing out demons, more extreme versions, but also primarily as a fever reducer. You know, if you, if you have a fever, if you have some sort of disease that causes a fever, um using that supposedly will help bring those symptoms down. Um, the problem is that the markets keep evolving. So if you if you look at the markets in the in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, uh, and this is when Rhino poaching was really hitting East Africa primarily, uh, and then parts of, of Southern Africa, South Africa because it was quite isolated, um, you know, because of the apartheid regime, it was pretty much cut off. There were wars raging in Angola and Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe also similarly you had conflict there. So South Africa's populations pretty much escaped that onslaught, but countries like uh, you know Kenya were being hit really hard. Um, uh, Zimbabwe got really hit really hard in the 1980s and through into the, into the early 1990s. Um, and you had markets like Taiwan, for instance, which uh, you know a lot of rhino horn going out there. Singapore, Hong Kong, um, South Africa itself had built up quite close ties with some of those some of those countries. Um, you know, it was uh, as a result of sanctions busting. South Africa was under massive sanctions in the 1980s, but also in terms of trying to to fund uh, their own activities. So, you know, through Angola, you had, and it's a story I tell in the book, where the South African military were basically smuggling ivory out of Angola into South Africa, selling it on to back then licensed dealers, who were then trading it in Asia. So you had all these kinds of routes going on, and this massive onslaught. I mean, you know, the the black rhino population, uh, which at one stage was, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, reduced to, you know, almost in the space of two decades, to to you know, almost nothing. Um, You know, a handful, four four or five thousand, and the black black rhinos today remain the most endangered of of all of of all African rhinos. so those markets kept evolving, and and no one really knows why. You know, it's one of the one of the key mysteries and one of the key unsolved mysteries. Is why did Taiwan suddenly become um, an area of demand for rhino horn, or why did Yemen in the late seventies, with the oil boom, and that's potentially a hint, become a demand for rhino horn, which would be used in jambiya daggers, these traditional daggers that many guys in Yemen wear. Um why would then moving on to, to more recent times, why would Vietnam suddenly um emerge? And it the only sort of thing that seems to link them together is these pockets of newfound wealth. You know, as those countries develop, as their economies develop, you know, Yemen, massive oil boom, end of the 70s, lots of money around. Um, you know, basically all the Rhino Horn shifted to Yemen from Asia. I mean, there were some shipments going out. Um Vietnam, the same thing. You know, one of the rising dragons of 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 Asia, um, and that newfound wealth and the the nouveau riche there, you'd you'd find that sort of building up. Um, that was where the demand was. Um, similarly, you had these urban myths that would do the rounds. So there was a tabloid newspaper in Hanoi which told the story about a Vietnamese communist party official. That story, over the years and the telling, you know, has changed. Sometimes it's a Vietnamese army general. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's some you know prime minister or former prime minister um, who developed cancer, who was then cured of cancer by taking a mixture of Rhinohorn and rice wine. Mm-hmm. Um, To put that in context, so Vietnam has very few hospitals with oncology wards. All of them basically are in major cities. So Hanoi and and, um, Ho Chi Minh City um, tend to have most of those. So a lot of people coming from rural areas uh, are arriving at hospitals, and these are not the greatest. I mean, I went to the one, the oncology ward in Hanoi. You know, you've got people two to a bed, people sleeping under beds, um, you know hundreds of people queuing outside trying to get chemotherapy treatment, people who are arriving, you know, in stage four, you know, cancer. Um, and the story started doing the rounds, and then you'd have doctors there who would say, look, we'll treat you with chemotherapy and so on, but you should try this too, because it's mm-hmm. maybe it'll help. Um, traditional medicine wards at these hospitals, saying that kind of thing. So people latched onto that, and a lot of these guys were, you know, were poor people who were pretty desperate, who would just spend everything that they had to get their hands on a piece of rhino horn. And sadly, in many cases, they were they were given buffalo horn. You know, they were given anything but rhino horn. They mm. were basically scammed. Mm. Um, so you know, and then that evolved over time to where. You know, constantly you've got these networks looking for new markets. It's like the drugs trade, but it's like mm. any commercial business. You know, you you're looking for opportunities. You're looking for, you know, what's the next big thing? How are we going to sell more of the product? Um, so, Rainer Horn then morphed into a party drug, where you know kids were drinking it as a hangover cure. In nightclubs, um, it became a status symbol for for the very rich. So there's a banker guy was vice chairman of Sacom Bank, which is one of the the second largest bank in Vietnam. Um, he had an entire stuffed rhino from South Africa in his house, which he bought from a guy who shot it in one of these so called pseudo hunts that we we talk about, where mm-hmm. you know you'd have hunters going out applying for hunting permits. Getting a permit to shoot a rhino. South Africa allows limited hunting of white rhino. Um, there's a quota of hunts for black rhino, uh, and that's meant to to benefit conservation. So five five black rhino a year. Um, this guy had come out, got a hunting permit, shot the rhino, take, had it had a taxidermist stuff it, took the whole rhino back to Vietnam, and then given it to this banker as a, as a housewarming gift. You know, mm-hmm. because, and with a little card saying. Here's to your happy new home. Hope this brings you good luck. So the guy had this rhino in his living room, um, and first of all, that gift was completely illegal. So you know, it, ultimately, if you take a, um, a, a rhino trophy out, it's your personal trophy. You can't gift it. You can't sell it. You can't cut it up. You can't do anything. You it's yours to hang on your wall. It's yours as a trophy hunter. Um. The the banker reported to police, phone police said, No, someone broke into my my house and they've made off with the rhino horns. And so you had this extraordinary image of this gray, quite not the best taxidermy I've seen, rhino, with these horns kind of hacked off. Uh, someone made off for them and the and the cops there are looking, you know, looking into that. But no one's actually asked the question of how did this banker actually get? Right. The, the rhino and what was the motivation of the guy giving it to and What happened to the guy who actually, you know, did that? So those kinds of bizarre things. So you'd see rhino horn becoming the status symbol. a know, guys putting rhino horn on, on a mantelpiece or as part of a shrine. Um, people giving chunks of rhino horn as gifts. Um, and then that again morphed into rhino horn as an aphrodisiac being sold. So rhino horn wine, um, which was a, a newspaper myth, you know. It was it was a 1950s, if I remember correctly, sort of newspaper myth that was created that people were using rhino horn as an aphrodisiac, um, and a Western sort of newspaper myth. But the syndicates made that real, so they started selling this, you know, this aphrodisiac rice wine, and then you've got carvings, you know, bangles, bracelets, beads, and that going to Chinese buyers who would come into to Vietnam. Go to places like Nikkei, which is a, a village just outside Hanoi, where there are a lot of artisans and carvers, and which has been a hub of, of traffic and trade in Rhinohorn, which the, the Wildlife Justice Commission did an incredible investigation into. So you've got these constantly shifting markets, and you've got the guys on the on the supply side here in Africa who are trying to you know counter this. And then you've got this market in Asia, which is Is expanding, changing, um, you know, syndicates that are operating uh, quickly across borders. uh, Law enforcement just simply can't keep up in many cases. And you
0: talk about the history that you talk about in here is is fascinating as well. And uh, when you talk about the Rhodesian Bush War in the '70s, Mm. um, actually protecting the rhinos for a little bit because focus was was elsewhere, um, and and how all that that works. So that's that's fascinating. But um, the process of Today, because things have morphed over time, just like any any business warfare, whatever, anything else is uh, is constant adaptation. Um, and uh, so today, or in the last, let's say, twenty years, uh, that person or that group of people that end up getting onto a concession or into a, a national park with an AK forty seven or with a any rifle and uh, mm-hmm. and taking one of these these rhinos and sawing off the horn or chainsawing off, however they're they're doing it, um, like how much is that person making? versus how much uh, everybody along the way because then you have this whole illicit uh, uh, essential essentially an economy where you have mm-hmm. corrupt officials at, at different levels um, local national international um, so how, what does that look like with some from some, that person mm-hmm. getting hired to do that uh, the, the, how much are they making and then Where does that horn go from there and who's getting paid off along the way and how is it getting shipped out uh, Mm. today or over the last decade or so? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the weaponry, that's kind of an interesting one um, because poaching in Southern Africa in some ways looks a lot different to poaching in Mm. Eastern Central Africa where you have... A lot of armed militias in Central and East Africa, particularly Central Africa, going in with you know AKs. They are heavily armed. They're involved in insurgencies in some cases. Um, to Southern Africa, where your poachers have traditionally been using. I mean, there are cases where AK47s have been used more as protection weapons than mm-hmm. anything else. But these are guys going in with with um, you know with hunting rifles. Um, so and. Um, initially, you know, quite like old, antiquated stuff, um, you know, old 303s, and you know, kind of sort of rusting away, um, and then, you know, over time becoming more and more sophisticated. So, CZ 550s, which were very popular here at Czech rifle, very popular here um, as a hunting rifle, um, started turning up uh, in in um, in Kruger National Park, for instance. And then you had sound suppressors, you know, kind of um uh increasingly sophisticated sound spread. Back from you know the days when guys would hand tool these really crude sound suppressors and sort of strap them onto the end of a barrel or mm-hmm. you know, put rifling on themselves. And there was kind of, you know, the guys that would seize those weapons would look at this going, yo, I'm not sure I want to, you know, take a shot for that. I mean, it could go badly yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um but um, so, on the ground, you've got, you know, these poaching gangs which operate. Um, so, in the early days, it, a lot of the poaching, and I'm, I was talking now specifically about South Africa, was coming across the Mozambican border into the Kruger National Park. The Kruger National Park uh, is a national park the size of Israel, uh, size of Wales, um, so it's pretty huge. It's a country, pe- people who work there actually refer to it as the Republic of Kruger. Mm. Um, it's kind of a country of its own in ways. And it's, it it borders um, it, uh, Mozambique on the one side, and then you have South Africa on the, other, on the other side. So on one side, on the South African side, you have a population living outside the park of around a million people. Um, and actually, it's probably uh, that, those numbers have grown since then. Mm-hmm. But it's... It's a very high-density population. Uh, there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of poverty. Um, on the other side, you have quite uh, dispersed villages in in northern Mozambique, which run along that that boundary with the Kruger National Park. And then you have the the Limpopo National Park, which is on the Kruger side. With, I mean, on the Mozambique side, which is joined to Kruger. Essentially, they've dropped fences between the two. It's part of a a project called the Peace Parks uh, Project, which is meant to to drop fences, bring countries together around conservation. And there are people living within that park. And many of the poachers in those early days were coming from some of those villages in Mozambique. Small groups, normally two to three people, they'd walk into the the Kruger. Back then, you had rhinos, which were largely scattered all over the park. You had quite a lot of rhinos in the north. Uh, quite a lot in those boundary areas. They were very easy to find. Um, you know, the population was was uh, much bigger than it is today. Um, so you have a guy with a rifle. You maybe have another guy who'd be doing protection. You know, sometimes with an AK, sometimes just with a with a nine mil or something like that. Uh, someone who'd be a tracker and someone who'd carry water and supplies. And these guys weren't that sophisticated. You know, you you'd see crazy scenes of people with bright pink backpacks going into the national park, which just seems somewhat self-defeating, <laughs> um, you know, running shoes, like these old sneakers that are like seen better days. Um, and, you know, they'd find a rhino. In some cases you had guys who'd never, you know, seen a rhino before, never shot a rhino. So the whole thing was kind of make it up as you go. Um, they'd, they'd make a kill. And then as they grew more and more sophisticated, they learned things like, you know, you, you, um, Anti-tracking. They, you know, some of these guys were quite experienced trackers themselves. These are, you know, young guys who grew up looking after their father's cat, so they have some innate tracking ability from, particularly from those rural communities. They learned, for instance, that you didn't need an axe or a machete to hack the horn off. That if you if you took a knife and cut around the base plate of of a rhino horn, you know, pretty much like your fingernail, you could okay. you could lever it off and just pop the horn off almost. Oh wow. Um, which which makes it a lot easier um, than poaching elephants. Now elephants, it's a it's it's a lot of work and it's a lot of hard work to get those tusks off, and they weigh a lot. So it's you know you've then got to lug them through the bush. Whereas rhino horn, it's a couple of you know couple of pounds, couple of kilograms, um, carry that off with you. The horn would then be taken out of the park. And, and some of these groups, I mean, they move at speed. You know, and you talk to rangers on the ground who were trying to track them or intercept them. I mean, they they move at a pace through that mm. bush because they, you know, they're they experienced. Yeah. And I'm now talking about your more sophisticated gangs. And they can move uh, large distances very, very quickly and they don't slow down. Get across the border back into Mozambique then you would you know go to the boss that you have rented the hunting rifle from in most cases they'd rent the rifles so they'd have to pay a fee for that they rent the bullets too um, and they pay a fee for the bullets you know and the bullets that they don't use after return um, and the boss would then move that through his chain you've got guys who run taxi businesses so some of them are smugglers you've got middlemen intermediaries. And then, ultimately, from there, your your horn is moving to Maputo, the capital of, of Mozambique, um, and to, invariably, either Vietnamese or Chinese middlemen, or occasionally the odd North Korean spy who's really sort of inventive, um, and they would then get it out through there. And they'd use, you know, I, I think that's where the, the trail gets a bit murky for those of us that look into this. Um, the there's enough evidence to suggest that they're using the same kinds of smuggling routes that are being used for other commodities. So, you know, the same smuggling routes are being used for heroin or mm. um, other drugs, or for rubies going out, or mm. um, smuggled gold, timber, right. um, and bribing the same officials and the same customs guys to get it through airports. You know, rhino horn is great to take through an airport, and and again, back in the early days, guys would take take horns shove it in a suitcase, um, smear toothpaste all over the horn or shampoo, put it in a plastic bag. Um, you didn't really have detector dogs that were trained to to pick up on rhino horn back then. Wow. So they'd hide the smell because rhino, I mean, rhino horns after a period of time, I'm sure you know, but uh, you know, once they've been hacked off, um, it takes a while for them to dry out and the 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 smell of the rod is pretty overpowering, yeah. so you've got to kind of cover it. it, and then carry it on as as hand luggage, you know, wow. which you can't do again with ivory. I mean, ivory you need containers, you need a much bigger yeah. operation for ultimately a lot less uh, return on your investment. You know, Rhino oh. horn has significantly high high value, so at the poaching level. It varies. I mean, we did a we did a project um, at Traffic, the International Wildlife Trade Monitoring Network, where I worked previously, um, where we interviewed poachers in jail, and you know some of those guys were getting anything from a couple of hundred dollars up to you know two three thousand dollars. You're really big shooters. You're your good shooters. The you know the guys who knew what they were doing, who were experienced, who be doing it for a long time, could pretty much command a much higher price. Oh, wow. And then as it goes up the chain, it picks up value. Um, those early prices from, you know, I mean, there were figures back in, the, in 2010, 2011 of like 60,000 US dollars a kilo on the black market. Those figures have come down quite dramatically. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, back then, and, and it probably wasn't really known when I was writing the book, but um, there were syndicates who were testing the market to see what the market was willing to pay. Oh. And I think, you know, they, Initially you had people pay willing to pay prices like then over time it's come down. Um, you know, these days it's less than a third of that. Um wow. uh in in those markets, yeah. Interesting. So that's good for the the rhino then I would I would
0: guess. Is that uh does has that shown any any difference in well, uh, in the demand for
1: or yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky to say. Look, the demand seems to still be there. Okay, uh, the demand hasn't really changed. So then it's not the, good. The <laughs> so still... then I guess it would not be. Yeah, because then it would
0: be cheaper yeah. to get that same uh, impact. Yeah. In yeah. Asia. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Gosh. So the so the, the so the price is still you know the price is still pretty high. It's still there, but um, you know, COVID lockdowns, all of that has had its own impact, and. And at the moment, it's it's really tricky to understand what's happening with the rhino horn market because there haven't been that many flows going out of Africa. Um, you know, with with passenger planes basically grounded, no one's carrying yeah. rhino horn out. Okay. There have been seizures of containers trying to ship rhino horn out. Um, uh, so, been a couple of those seizures taking place. So, no one really knows what is happening at the moment, and that's the big mystery. You know, mm. a guy's stockpiling horn in Africa waiting for the gateway to open again, and then shipping yeah. it out. Um, and similarly in Vietnam, um, you know, there's some movement going on, but not quite on the same scale. Jeez, amazing. Uh, and I wanna read this too, cause it's so, I mean, the writing is wonderful
0: uh, uh, as well as what you're saying here. Um, that night, a rust red poacher's moon rises into the darkness, the largest full moon of the year. As it ascends, the color bleeds away until only a slivery glow remains. Pale light filters through the bushes and the thorn trees. Out there, somewhere in the shadows, silent groups of poachers are heading south and across the border in the Kruger. The game rangers, soldiers, and cops are lying in wait. Four days later, the stinking remains of two rhino carcasses are found near the park's Crocodile Bridge gate. The horns have been hacked off. The rangers pick up the trail. Broken blades of grass scuff marks in the sand, flattened scrub, crushed plants. Police and soldiers are deployed. Hours later, there's a crackle of gunfire, and a man lies dead. Two others are taken away, their hands cable-tied behind their backs. Four horns, a hunting rifle, and an axe are found. The number of rhinos killed in the Kruger now stands at 130, and another corpse is consigned to a cheap pine coffin and a dusty grave. I mean, that's great writing. You need to write
1: another book. I mean, it, it's, uh, that's fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, I remember that vividly, actually. Because yeah. I, I was kind of in Mozambique, uh, and I remember watching, I mean, I actually took pictures of that moon. It was incredible. Um, and, you know, we were, uh, I was I was um, at that stage trying to sort of interview some poachers in Mozambique. Uh, so I was sitting in the Limpopo National Park in one of their spots Then that sat there that night, you know, outside a fire going, watching that moon going up, and knowing that, something was going to happen that night, you know, something was going to happen around that time period. Yeah. Uh, The different levels of, of corruption, when we're talking about
0: this much money, just like with, with drugs, uh, anywhere really in the world, but particularly in the United States and, and into Europe, um, there's so much money involved uh, that mm. people are willing to go to extraordinary lengths, obviously, to move a product for which there is insatiable demand um, in the country, same country that's trying to uh, to 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 stifle this uh, uh, this incursion of of drugs. But at all these different levels, what when you see this corruption and you see, I don't know, is it payoffs or how how does that work? Are you seeing? game wardens in some cases that are, uh, that are, are part of these syndicates and that are supposed to be, uh, uh, obviously running troops against it. Um, and same thing at higher, higher levels and local governments and national governments are there. What does that look like? That, uh, that scale of corruption. And mm-hmm. in some cases, is it, uh, bribes is it looking out of the way? Is it blackmail? Is it, um, uh, actual payoffs or just someone turning their head because they're scared of their family being killed? Like, what are we looking at when we're talking about, uh, corruption and coercion at those other levels, not the people that are out there hacking the horns off and actually doing the shooting, but those that allow that rhino horn to move by either taking a bribe or looking the other way.
1: Yeah. So it's, I, I mean, I think it's all of the above. Um, you know, to, to, to tell you a bit of a personal story, um, if you if you look at the book, uh, there's a bunch of photographs uh, in the middle. And I think on one of the early photos, there's a picture of two rangers in Zimbabwe uh, doing anti-tracking. Um, there's a guy there called Sylvester. Yeah, at the bottom there. Um, Sylvester was one of the best rangers, one of the most fearless rangers in Zimbabwe, when that part of Zimbabwe at the time. <laughs> he'd been through multiple firefights. He'd been in contact with poachers with AK-47s, in that case, um, presumably ex-military, with a bolt action rifle. And he'd taken them on single-handedly. I mean, he was he was known to be almost foolhardy in his in his um his bravery, you know, like charging these guys with a with a bolt action rifle and just firing shot after shot after shot. Um so he'd been through these, he'd saved some of his colleagues, he'd nearly been in, killed a couple of times. Um, and the tragedy about Sylvester is that Sylvester became, uh, he ran into debt, he developed a bit of a gambling problem, I understand. And he ultimately became, uh, he was fired from, from his job. You know? And this was a guy who's been groomed for, for great things. Um, and he's now in prison in South Africa awaiting trial uh, he became involved in rhino poaching here. He became involved in rhino poaching in Zimbabwe, you know, to the point where his his ex colleagues in the anti poaching force knew that he was out there and guiding poachers into the area. Um, and, you know, they they probably would have, I wouldn't be surprised if they would have killed him if they came across because, I mean, he was, you know, he was playing a pivotal role in, in threatening their lives. So that, for me, is the kind of thing that you see. That's where corruption really eats away. You know, there was another guy as well in the Kruger National Park, again, being groomed for, for really um, a high position there, mm-hmm. ran into financial difficulties. There's almost a, a thread here. Um, you know, this was a guy who won awards for his conservation work. Um who was widely respected, you know who was he was acclaimed at least within South Africa, who um, ultimately turned out to be corrupt and was arrested with a rhino horn with a corrupt traffic cop, uh, tra- traffic officer uh, who was with him. Um, so I think it's very easy. I think we 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 tend to treat corruption as something that's sort of over there. But I think in this space, it becomes, you know, and and this is true of any illicit economy, is it's very easy for people to slip into that. You know, if um, you're facing these threats on a daily basis uh, and your own life is kind of a mess and you don't have the cash and, you know, you've got a wife and kids and all that sort of stuff. The temptation is great. And, and these syndicates go out and they actively try and find weaknesses. They try and find, particularly in places again, you know, like the Kruger or the BB Valley Conservancy or Tosha National Park in Namibia, they target rangers, they get inside info, they've got sources on the ground, they try and build up a profile of rangers that they think they can they can mm. corrupt, or police officers they can corrupt, and they go after them. And they 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 they, they you know they pick away at those weaknesses, so they very they've become very slick at doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think what what what's encouraging though in some ways is that your core so and the, the Kruger National Park's got a sort of rapid response unit, a core range of force to deal with poaching. Um, there have been very few, if any, incidents that I'm aware of where there's been corruption there. So it's it's sometimes in the broader field range of court where you, where you have issues. Um, but it can happen anywhere, you know, and and there's constantly sort of questions, and it's, you know, it's people being smeared to and being accused of corruption when they're not necessarily corrupt, um, which is, is something else that happens quite a lot in South Africa. Unfortunately, you know, the... Uh, we've had cases where people are actually investigating corruption, then are accused of corruption themselves. Um, so it gets very messy very quickly, and I think it's very difficult. They've tried to put in um, procedures to do um, uh, stress voice analysis testing on staff to you know to try and get a, a sense of what's going on there. They've done. They've tried to do lifestyle investigations, but they run into a wall too with some of the trade unions. Um, and the trade unions are not particularly care on that. They don't particularly care for that kind of scrutiny and are, are championing their members' privacy and so on and so forth. So politically, it becomes a very complicated issue. Um, beyond the national parks, um, you're looking at government officials, uh, particularly at local government level. You know, guys working in the, the pseudo hunting that I write about. That yeah. book, these these sham hunts, which were an abuse of of hunting regulations and legislation. Um, designed purely to get Rhinohorn legally to 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 asia um that involved uh, officials turning blind eyes you know, officials signing off hunting registers uh knowing full well that you know the the four foot nine young Vietnamese woman who could barely hold a hunting rifle and, um, you know, was standing there next to the carcass, um, you know, dressed complete, completely inappropriately and sort of bright pink outfit had never been a hunter in her life, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So you have that. And then there have been, you know, suggestions of, of corruption involving more, more senior officials, um, most of those unconfirmed. So it's it's a constant challenge. I mean, corruption is ultimately probably the biggest challenge that we We face. I mean, it's 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 eroded our police force. It's eroded our intelligence networks. It's eroded our military. Um, You know, there there's stories too about the military deployment in in the Kruger. Um, Admittedly, they're also again. You know, good side. I I I I don't want to say everyone's corrupt because there really are good guys out there. You know, the the Kruger anti-poaching, for instance, would not have been their operations would not have been possible without. Um, a detachment of air force guys who were basically running um um comms for them on the ground mm. you know particularly with night night operations um who were um you know guiding those flights in um late at night you know were doing all that sort of stuff you know some of the the reconnaissance soldiers who were deployed in Kruger at various stages you know remarkable work kind of tracking down poaching groups so they're really good people who yeah. whose who are being undercut by what these other guys are doing? Yeah, but as with most illicit uh, networks, these uh,
0: you know socio socioeconomic conditions play a, a huge role in these. And so it's, mm-hmm. a, it's oftentimes a lot. Uh, more gray than black and white than we look at here over a you know a latte at a Starbucks here in the United States thinking, oh, Rhino, it's wanted in Asia, black, white, connect the dot. That's it. Like there's a lot of other forces uh at play here, um, which yeah. uh, which is why it's such a such a difficult I- issue to deal with. Um and then uh there's there's so many fascinating chapters in here, but uh the apartheid secret uh chapter. Um what's yeah. uh what was going on with with uh with that and i have let's see i mean there's there's so many fascinating things to read here but uh right here and this is a little bit farther back this is january of 1979 mm-hmm. um we say a 23 year old intelligence officer returns to a to a base in namibia after an operation deep inside angola uh, des berman is strung out and exhausted lieutenant in the south african defense force he's been working closely with ele- elements of unita you went does that how you say it you need to moving as a military advisor he's lost count of the number of contacts he's been in lately firefights things that move fast on the ground berman and his team are perpetually on the run pursued and shot at by cuban gunships by now the the ops follow a familiar pattern get in find the enemy kill them and get out in a cloud of dust in a whirl of rotor blades the frequent deployments take their toll berman needs a new rifle if you're regularly dropped into combat by chopper the solid stock of the standard issue r one is nothing but a hindrance he's looking for a rifle with a folding stock. He dumps his pack and heads to the stores. The warehouse is green army full of green army packing cases. He opens one, then another and another. He's astonished by what he finds. every single case was packed with ivory and rhino horn and game skins including sable roan antelope leopard skins, and lion skins man there's so many amazing chapters in, but what was that what was uh how did you find that app, find that story? Did you, yeah, I must have talked to, talked to, maybe, did you talk to him or how did you get that story? And then yeah, uh, yeah, you talk yeah, a little no, bit more about that chapter?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was really, that for me was really interesting. It was kind of one of these forgotten stories in South Africa's history um, where there'd been a lot of reporting in the 1980s around, uh, you know, movements of ivory, movements of, of other wildlife products out of Angola being smuggled out by the, by the military, uh, these were, in most cases, this was ivory, which uh, UNITA, um, led by Jonas Savimbi at the time, which South Africa was allied to. I'm not going to go into all the details of of the conflict, but you know, ultimately, it was a it was a proxy war during one of one of the Cold War proxy wars. Uh, you know, you had Cuban, Cuban deployments on the other side. You had Savimbi and the South Africans, um, and Savimbi's so guys were shooting a lot of elephants. Um, the South Africans themselves, in some cases, were shooting a lot of elephants, and those shipments of ivory were being moved out of Angola back into South Africa and then shipped off to places like Taiwan and and so on. And then the the money from that would, in some uh, you know, either disappear or go to to funding the war effort. Um, and so there was. There was a general actually, a guy called Jan Breitenbach, who's a who's a legendary special forces general in South Africa. He was one of those guys who he really led from the front line. He was out there with you know with these guys on the ground. Um, I don't think I've ever met anyone who served under him who doesn't have, you know, total and utmost respect for him and would probably follow him into combat today. You know if he if he decided to do that well he's I mean he's obviously very elderly now. his brother ironically was um, a very famous novelist and writer who had yeah who'd signed up with the ANC um so you had those those kinds of characters who were involved there but Breitenbach was the man who sort of blew the whistle on what was happening in these ivory ships so mm. aside from being a military general he was also a An avid conservationist. And, you know, the military bases that he ran, they had, you know, there was wildlife around there. They had, uh, in one case, there was a pet lion that used to roam around the one base. Um, You know, quite crazy stuff, but he was passionate about the environment. He wrote a beautiful book um, uh, about about his experiences there later, but he blew the whistle on it. And there were others like Des Berman who ultimately testified before a commission of inquiry in South Africa. Which, uh, and usually for a commission of inquiry in the apartheid days, actually exposed these kinds of things. You know, a lot of that stuff would have been brushed under the carpet. Um, and, and the Kumleben Commission of Inquiry. So I started scratching around. I'd read some stuff. Uh, Judge kumleben who led the commission, is retired. Uh, so I got hold of him. Um, I was struggling to get a copy of the commission report. He actually sent me his own copy, which was incredible. Um, you know, this reporter just phoning out of nowhere, and then started cold calling people, trying to find people involved. And And Berman, I managed to find a number for him. You know, he's he's running another business now. And he was surprisingly initially a bit hesitant and wary, but then surprisingly keen to, to talk more about it. Um, and I found a lot of those guys that were around then were, you know... They may not want to talk about the war or the conflict. Um, you know, as a lot of vets don't particularly like talking about the conflicts they're involved in. But they were. this was one issue that really got them mm-hmm. heated up. Um, you know, this, this scale of the slaughter that they saw. And um, so it was piecing those bits together. And there were these other fascinating objects, uh, you know, elements. I mean, there's a chapter in the book about a, a US Fish and Wildlife Service um, um, operation at the time which touched on, on South Africa smuggling ivory and, and South African army guys smuggling ivory into the United States and this undercover operation, which this guy, Rich Moulton, who who still lives in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I actually met him like about a year or two after the book came out. I sort of interviewed him online and then went to the States and and met him there. We had coffee at a diner. It was great. Um and I mean, he's a, he's a guy with incredible stories too. You know, he was involved in all kinds of investigations in Afghanistan and places like that, you know, back in, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that case, it was uh, involved a, um, a, um, a leopard skin, I think it was. Um, so yeah, it was also a very strange, strange story, but um those all those elements, you know, came together. And for me, that history was, you know, it's it's something that's kind of been forgotten about. Mm-hmm. People don't know about it. Um, and it, it very much tells the story of conservation in South Africa and efforts that have gone on, some efforts that have worked really well, some efforts less so to combat rhino poaching. You know, you mentioned Sir David Sterling, the founder of the of the British SAS. Um, and this this Quite crazy operation, if you think about it, you know, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that you, if you're writing about a novel, it probably would sound a little bit too far-fetched. Yeah, but... it sounds like fiction. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and weirder than fiction in some way. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, these guys getting That's how you know it's and, true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And coming together to do this undercover operation, ex-British SAS guys, bring them into South Africa Um, you know, infiltrate some of these networks, uh, try and clamp down on them. And then it's, I I think eventually it's, and I think the intentions were really good. Um, But I think ultimately it started getting a little bit beyond itself. You know, there was a bit of mission creep. Uh, You had people then coming up with options of, you know, maybe we should start assassinating dealers, which, you know, I think some people would probably look at and go, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) But, But it's, but it's, you know it, it the 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 operation sort of lost steam and it, mm. it grew beyond itself and and i think there were personal elements that came into play there too um uh, but but the basis of it is an intelligence gathering operation you know and if you talk to people who were there like uh, john hanks who was one of cyphering uh, conservationists who was very involved in that in that operation has actually subsequently written a book about it called mm. operation lock um he um you know, he would argue that the intelligence gathering that they did was was on a different level to some of the intelligence gathering that was being done at the time, and that there were there were good elements there. That you you know you had these guys in the in the field who were doing surveillance, they were pulling up together information, um, and that that information potentially could have had value, but it never quite got to that point.
0: Yeah. I was gonna ask you about operation lock. I'm glad to hear there's another book about it. Cause I wanted to know that's the name of one of your chapters here. And I wanted to, wanted to know more about it. Um, and it's yeah, it's all it's it's so fascinating. And I'm gonna read this part because it's once again it's so it's so mm. good. Um, but there's the the World Wildlife Federation, something called the 1001 Club, uh, yeah, Cast enterprises, <laughs> which is the
1: uh, David Sterling
0: SAS tie-in, and um, yeah, and
1: these then, amazing. these rich guys and a and a you know uh, the, the, yeah, in the Netherlands, the royal family. Yeah. I mean it's yeah. You, it's you crazy. Make this stuff I know up, that whole uh,
0: chapter could be, I could just, I could just use that and, you know, it's, you know kind of spread it out into a whole thousand, uh, you know, a hundred thousand word novel. Um, and people would think uh-huh. it was fiction, um, but it's, it's great. You say the file was meant to have been destroyed 22 years ago, but the old man kept it, hoarding it among a stack of documents in a locked filing cabinet. I felt at the time it was important. He explains. Uh, the crease manila folder is marked in red, private and confidential and stamped investigations, subject operation lock, There's a note penciled on the cover, illegal rhino horn smuggling. He opens the file, crooked fingers grasping at the yellow pages. You didn't get this from me, he says softly, as if the ghosts of a forgotten scandal might hear us. He leaves through it. Secret, no unauthorized dissemination warning. Compromise of contents or part thereof of this document could lead to the death of personnel involved in the operation. The folder contained details of a disastrous covert operation aimed at targeting and killing rhino and ivory poaching kingpins in the late 1980s. The ensuing scandal reached to the highest echelons of the worldwide fund for nature, the Dutch royal family, and a British mercenary firm staffed by some of the most decorated veterans of Britain's special air service. It is the story of gamekeepers turned poachers and men who may well have been willing to become the willing pawns of apartheid spies. It's awesome. Once again, that whole thing right there, I could take that, those couple paragraphs and just turn it into a novel. It's fascinating. And, uh, and I might use, I'm not really going to use a lot of this because I like doing little touch points that make people go... I wonder if that's mm. real or not. i'm I'm interested in that, and then go down the path of uh, of, yeah. uh, of researching it them uh, themselves. But um I think mean, there's so many things in here that uh, that sound like fiction as we as we discussed. What was the most surprising part either in of writing the book or what that you found out in researching the book or of discovered sense? um because I would think that when you write a book like this, uh, and then mm. it becomes more widely dissemin- uh, disseminated disseminated people see it and then want to talk to you about it and say, Hey, you know what, this and this and this, and you learn even more in the, in the decade sense, but what's been the most surprising thing that you either learned from writing this book from that research or in the years since?
1: I think, I mean, for me, it's still ultimately, I think it comes down to, um, the lengths that people will go to get their hands on Rhino horn, you know, mm-hmm. that I, I, I just find, I mean, yeah, you, know, you talk about these crazy characters and all that sort of stuff, but, um, you know, subsequent to the book, I did another investigation which looked at uh, the role of, of North Korea in wildlife traffic, you know, North Korean operatives. And uh, I eventually went to, to uh, South Korea, um, met a couple of North Korean defectors there who'd been involved in, in embassy operations in Africa, smuggling horn out. Uh, for sale in China, you know, as a way to raise funds for for the regime of Kim Jong Un. Um, again, it's the kind of thing that just seems so incredibly bizarre. You know, why why would people go to those lengths? You know, the the one story that came out there that were these uh, two guys that drove up to to Mozambique from South Africa um, in a northern uh, uh, North Korean embassy car, diplomatic car, diplomatic plates. They get waved through the border. They go into Mozambique. They then got arrested. And it's kind of murky about why they got arrested. But they got stopped with um, by Mozambican police or possibly Mozambican intelligence people mm. who searched the car. And they found rhino horns. And they found about, I think it was $100,000 in cash on wow. the vehicle. And they were detained for a while. One guy was a Taekwondo master who had been in South Africa for a long time who'd been training in you know Taekwondo here um, North Korean guy the other guy was was a, a senior diplomat um, but it seems that the Taekwondo master was also and this is you know I, I discovered through doing research and talking to people on 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 this particular case it's one of the ways that North Korea implants spies into into Foreign countries um, is through you know using taekwondo and that kind of thing, and this guy there was there was a bit of a paper trail which suggests that he actually was a North Korean spy and had been a North Korean spy for quite some time while you know teaching taekwondo classes. Um, so that's you know again it's why you know um, there are easier things to do than driving to Mozambique, hanging around in sort of dark parts of Maputo, the capital trying to buy a rhino horn from some guy and then bring it across the border into South Africa. I mean, this is high risk stuff for sure. Maybe the rewards, okay, but you could probably do better smuggling cigarettes or mm. moving gold or buying, you know, cars duty-free as a diplomat and then mm. shipping those up. Um, so it's those, those kinds of lengths of things. Um, and it, it still fascinates me. man. Every time you hear the, you know new stories about poaching or new people have been arrested is, is those those links or or the people who keep coming back you know you look at um, even now 10 10 years on from the height of, of pseudo hunting activity in South Africa some of the people that are are involved in in the illicit trade in in Rhinohorn whose names keep coming up are people who first emerged then you know people Vietnamese guys whose names appear on hunting registers who um, you know, went back to Vietnam, but have developed and expanded and grown in the illegal wildlife trade. Some of them have become syndicate bosses in their own right or now moved into other illicit activities. so those names keep coming back, and people keep taking that risk huh. um, so yeah, so i think I think for me, that was probably the most surprising thing in a way it was was just the lengths that 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 people would go to for you know, it's a piece of dead horn, basically interesting what. the uh the the north
0: korean taekwondo master spy it sounds like the plot of a really bad 1980s action film or maybe a fantastic (laughs) 1980s action film i don't know i really i really love it i can see it in my mind's eye right now Uh, amazing uh and and interpol has a wildlife crime working group that has access to dna samples um, and when I was in South Africa last, we actually uh, did that. we uh tranquilized a uh, a rhino we took measurements of the horn uh they implanted some sort of a tracking anyone anyway, they did some stuff there and uh, and took DNA samples as as well but um how's that interpol what is that Interpol group and
1: it's a it's a worldwide uh, uh task force of yeah. Interpol? So I think I mean if you're looking at Interpol, I mean a lot of people see Interpol as you know the sort of global police agency, but but Interpol, for all in a, yeah, I mean if you really want to be kind of break it down quite crudely, is Interpol works like a post office, works oh. like the U.S. Postal Service, so it brings Uh-oh. together, it's a communication channel for for law enforcement mm. <laughs> agencies to to communicate, so you know put out um, uh, red notices through that, they can coordinate investigations, so they can. Um, you know, coordinate investigation with multiple countries, hopefully. Um, but Interpol is only, in many ways, only as good as as the countries or the, the country offices that make it up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every country has its local NCB, its National Criminal Bureau, where police from that country are assigned to the NCB. The mm-hmm. NCB is nominally, you know, is a representative of Interpol, but that yeah. country will appoint people to that position. Um, the working group, the environmental working group, though, has been really, really useful in 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 trying to coordinate law enforcement responses and bring law enforcement expertise around, you know, around the table uh, together with people you know working uh, to some degree on conservation, but mainly law enforcement expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the challenges in tackling something like rhino poaching is, and you know, you talk to to people who work on the law enforcement side, um. Very often, it's the wrong people sitting around the table. <laughs> so you'll have um, a conference, an environmental conference happening, or you'll have a workshop happening, or you'll have um, a law enforcement strategy being drawn up by conservationists. Um, and we've seen that time and time again: Department of Environmental Affairs in South Africa, or the you know uh, a game department, or a you know some other sort of environmental department in another mm-hmm. country. Because it's a conservation issue and it's seen as a conservation issue, they are tasked with coming up with a law enforcement strategy. The problem is cops don't really, you know, they're not going to take orders from another government department. Mm. I mean, cops are cops. And law enforcement strategy is a very different thing to police than it is to another department who has no idea what they're kind of drawing out. So, I think what where, where Interpol was really good there was trying to, to get the right people around the table and having people working within environmental departments who work on enforcement issues together with law enforcement people uh-huh. um, and discussing that issue and trying to come up with, with approaches and policy approaches and coordinate that. Um, but that that has been probably the biggest challenge. And I think it's going to be more of a challenge now in the age of COVID, um, where Conservation departments, environmental departments are trying to act as police. You know, they mm. they're trying to deal with what is what is ultimately a law enforcement problem. Um, and you know, that's my big fear at the moment with the with the impact that the pandemic has had, you know, um, uh, conservation areas, game parks, um, hunting reserves, there are no tourists coming in, there are no hunters coming in, there's there's no money coming in. Um, governments in Africa are facing massive economic fallout from from the pandemic mm. and from pandemic lockdowns. Um, th- the first place that budgets are going to be cut are things like conservation, mm. things like environmental departments, um, because there's so many other priorities. Uh, and in terms of policing priorities, they're they're even more priorities now, you know, in that, that take precedence over environmental issues. So that's kind of quite a key, a key nub. And how do you fix that? And how do you fill that gap?
0: Is that the, uh, where we're failing? Um, I guess if you're looking at this problem, having looked at it for so long as you haven't studied it, so uh, is mm-hmm. in depth, um, where are we failing? Um, and is it, is it, Hey, that demand in Asia, no matter what, because of that demand and until that gets turned mm-hmm. off, we can, we can play whack-a-mole over here in Africa all we want uh just like kind of with with drugs or with uh you know terrorism mm. whatever else you're one and then another pops up or you kill the wrong guy and then you get a better guy yeah. in his place or whatever because he, he learns how you got the last one um so mm. where are we where are we failing there or what can we what did you see that really needs to be fixed or that can be done better uh when you look at, at that problem
1: yeah, I think, you know, I think that we we need to look at it from uh, multiple sort of levels. Um, I think I think one of the prevailing challenges, and I, I'm not sure it's a challenge that's going to go away, so we need to find ways of working around that, is um, law enforcement agencies which are hindered by uh, borders, by bureaucracy, by red tape, um, who, you know, can't adapt as quickly as as the criminal networks can. You know, you you cut off one arm, you shut down one element of, of the syndicate, you stop a couple of couriers. They'll have some new guys in the next day. Right. Uh, they'll change. They'll change the airport they they use or the border post they use. Um, law enforcement, simply by its very nature, can't adapt that quickly. Um, collaboration, information sharing, intelligence sharing is still. A massive problem. I think it's got better, um, but it's not, and I'm not sure it's ever going to get much better than it is right now. Um, you know, I think there's there's greater cooperation and sharing financial intelligence. Mm. The banks on board. The banks are working with police. Um, I think that their trust relationships that are built up between law enforcement and conservation people in South Africa, for instance, and in Mozambique. Um, I I'm I was quite relieved or or, or pleased to see before. Um, Prior to the COVID lockdown, about a year before that and so on, you saw Chinese enforcement guys from their customs department proactively doing investigations Mm. with counterparts in Africa. Um, We've seen investigations where the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration has collaborated with U.S. Fish and Wildlife plus Mm. Uh, law enforcement agencies in African countries investigating syndicates that are doing both drugs and um, ivory poaching. So all of that is really encouraging, but we need a lot more of that. We need, you know, those those and, th- and those those U.S. cases and some of the Chinese cases are great examples of how you can do cooperation across borders, uh, across multiple legal jurisdictions, and actually get. Uh, and enforcement action going, and not not just targeting kingpins and going after kingpins, but but targeted investigations going after the whole sort of management layer of, of of a transnational network. You know, you can take out the boss, you can take out the poacher at the bottom. Uh, there'll be another poacher, there'll be another boss. But if you systematically eradicate, you know, let's let's use corporate stuff. But if you if you take out the accounts department and you take out the shipping department. They have a big problem you know you basically take out that part there they've got to rebuild those structures so it's those kinds of targets investigations and um, demand reduction campaigns which are really really slow um, and you know we've been working on demand reduction campaigns in Asia for years in China and and public you know publicity campaigns and um, some of them are do seem to be showing benefits um i think those the ones that are targeted at younger Mm -hmm. people tend to be more effective you know get the kids to shame the adults that kind of strategy um but i think that it ultimately what it comes down to is you need those countries to enforce those laws you know rhino horn trade is illegal in vietnam it's illegal in china um it's illegal in Laos. um the you need that 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 will on that side to do investigations. I mean, I, I was encouraged the other day to see there was a, a case in Hanoi where uh, a Rhino horn trafficker who was who was arrested with about 50 pieces of Rhino horn got a 14-year jail sentence. Um, that's unheard of in Vietnam. You know, the, the Vietnam people walk away with, with fines or people walk away with no sentences. Uh, you know, or well, cases just disappear. So that is a really, uh, you know, interesting to see, and it'd be interesting to monitor and see why that, you know, that particular case led to centres like that. And are we going to is this is this some kind of change? Um, You mentioned DNA, you know, sharing of DNA. Um, uh, South Africa has this amazing DNA database, and you've been there. I mean, they they dehorn the rhino, they chip the rhino. Uh, so you can you can pick up the horn. I mean, invariably the chip is removed by syndicates when they when they they just drill it out. Mm. But the DNA is recorded, and that's vital information because if you get that, that rhino horn seized in you know wherever in China, in Beijing, and um, you know another African country, Mozambique, you've got evidence of the crime, and you can prove that that horn was smuggled, and you can use it when. And I, there've been some pretty good cases where that's been done. Um, I think you know we we need to you know also debate other alternatives. This is a particularly controversial one, and it's been probably the most divisive issue in, con- in conservation. But um, there's a very strong lobby here to to push for legalised trade in rhino horn. You know, can you you farm enough rhino horn mm-hmm. to supply the markets? Now, rhino horn regrows, um, so you know a lot of farmers de- dehorn their rhinos anyway to to prevent poaching. Um, and that horn is is stockpiled. It's it's stored away. You've got, you know, John Hume is the, the biggest single private rhino owner in the world. He's sitting on tons and tons of rhino horn, um, which was an investment. Um, he's, you know, and he's, he's got about, and he's got more than a thousand rhinos that he's bred. Um, you've got huge stockpiles of rhino horn. But how do you, the difficulty with that is how do you create a system that is, you know, impervious to the kind of corruption levels that we see? Um, how do you create a system where you can trade horn? And, and how much you know? Do we know enough about the markets? Do we know um, you know whether we can actually f- you know fill those markets? Can we satiate those markets? Um, so I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. But those are the sort of debates that are raging. Um, so do we take you know do we say what we've been doing for so long isn't working and we try something completely radical? Um, you know do we you know just reinvent the wheel in a way um, or, or try and try and come up with other strategy. or do we do we simply try and do what we've been doing but do it better and do it in a more targeted way mm-hmm. um so yeah so i think you know I wouldn't be sitting here if i had if I had the solutions. um I'd probably be sitting on a beach somewhere drinking a <laughs> drinking a cocktail. But, <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of yeah, I mean it's you know it's that sort of thing. i I think it's something we're going to wrestle with for a very long time. um the other element also is is to get rhinos to breed. you know if rhinos are not breeding, you've got a problem. and the you know the Kruger population, which is crucial, is um, is kind of hit a point where. Poaching was outstripping breeding rates. You know, um, just the rhinos have a gestation period of eighteen months, uh, so it's a long time. And when they're stressed, they don't breed. Mm. Um, so poaching pressure also has that impact yeah. on on those populations. And then breaking those populations up. So we we had a, a huge translocation the other day. Of um, there's a private reserve in South Africa, Pinda Private Reserve. Uh, Thirty rhinos moved from there to Rwanda to to restart a rhino population in Rwanda. Mm. Um, so, and and that's a strategy that's worked really well in the past. You know, if you look at um, uh, the 1960s when Dr Ian Player, who's he's sort of the doyen of conservation in South Africa, uh, brother of Gary Player, the golfer, um, you know Ian Ian uh, and a small team of guys, Tony Hartorn, who was a veterinarian. Um, they single-handedly saved the white rhino population in South Africa from extinction. There were a handful left. Uh, What they did was they split the population up, they moved them to different reserves, they moved them overseas, they got them to breed. Um, They also, you know, hunting became an element of that. Um, You know, uh, Ian Clay always liked to make that that statement that the biggest irony about saving rhinos was that it was through uncontrolled hunting in colonial times that they were basically brought to the brink of extinction but it was through regulated hunting in the 20th century that they were brought back uh, you know and through through game farmers investing in rhinos um, you know allowing some hunts then um, you know putting money back into conservation breeding more rhinos buying more rhinos rhino auctions and that way you grew the population. Um, and it became South Africa's greatest conservation success story, which is, you know, sadly now uh, in danger of being undone. But I think, you know, splitting up those populations, finding new secure habitats. So all of these, I mean, yeah. these are just a couple of things off the off the top of my head, but there's no one single magical silver bullet. Yeah.
0: Having studied it for so long, what do you think about that legalization of, uh, of rhino horn? Because it's a similar conversation that goes on about drugs or other, you know, illicit uh, mm. substances and, uh, and and that sort of thing. What what do you think about uh, yeah. legalizing that horn and? Guys like you and become billionaires all in a day, I guess. But uh, <laughs> what well, his investment finally yeah. pays off. But uh, w- w- having studied it for so long, what do you think about that legalizing that uh, that horn and growing that horn and, and making it a uh, something that's not uh, an illegal yeah. substance? It's
1: it's a tricky one, and I, I you know I'm I'm somewhat on the fence. Um, in the sense that I think we we need to know a lot more. Um, I. I do think that there is a need for us to relook at the strategies that we mm-hmm. we are employing, um, but I think there are also a lot of unknown quantities. Um, and I think, you know, for me, there are a couple of drawbacks. I mean, one is um, setting up the system, you know, and they, and you know, some people, the Private Rhino Owners Association in South Africa, have come up with an idea which um, you know would 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 allow for regulated, controlled sales. Mm-hmm. So it's something worth exploring there. Um, I think the other problem, though, is the mixed messaging side of things. And that's what a lot of people who who quite vehemently opposed to that idea come up with, is Reinhardt's illegal in Vietnam. It's illegal in China, at least on paper. Mm. People are using it and so on. We are telling them to clamp down. Um, If we then go and say, well, actually, we want to sort of try. And I've had Vietnamese government officials ask me this question. Um, where they've had dealings with with officials from South Africa, and they're saying, "Well, what do you want? Do you want to trade the horn, or do you want us to enforce the the regulations?" Um, and I, you know, I think if you can come up with a system that works, um, there's you know, there's there's a potential there to explore. But I think it's something that needs a lot more research, a lot more debate, and. Um, you know, we need to try and work out whether there is a way of feasibly setting up things. I think also the world has changed a bit um, in, you know, the COVID era with, you know, so much focus on China, Mm -hmm. the links between zoonotic diseases and pandemics. Um, Is there a newfound willingness that one can capitalize on in China to potentially enforce uh, trade? Mm -hmm. Um, There's some signs that that's quite good particularly when it comes to live wildlife yeah. trade but not so much with trade in horns or lion bones or, yeah. or issues like that um so yeah i mean like so many things it's complicated there's there's these you know these gray areas and 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 debates are raging and i i, I think the the difficulty for me also sorry is is you know it's kind of um the debate is so polarized you mm. can't Actually, get people around the table to talk rationally about these issues. You know, people are either pro-trade, anti-trade, and never the twain shall meet. Um, and I think that there's room for those kinds of discussions. You know, to sit down and actually have considered discussion. What are we going to do? You know, it's the same discussion people have when they say, "Great, let's ban hunting." You know, as the UK has indicated that they're going to do, mm-hmm. they're going to ban hunting trophies coming in. That's all well and good, but uh, what are you going to put in place? What's going to replace that? Um, and have you thought through the potential economic impacts and the potential conservation impacts? You know, if you um, Botswana is a nice example where they banned where they banned hunting, and there were you know unforeseen consequences, rising and poaching, et cetera, et cetera. Kenya too, so it's great. Put that on. Put yeah, Kenya exactly. So to so put that on the table, that's that's fine. But what what are your alternative solutions going to be? You can't, you know, deal with an issue in a vacuum. You've got to have something in place. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's where it also gets quite tricky. Yeah, it's interesting. No matter
0: what the issue is, it seems that uh, there is a benefit for organizations to keep things polarized because they can um, they can activate a base and generate more funds. Like our politicians can do it. Yeah. Our tech companies can do it. Uh, yeah, for advertising purposes and all that sort of a thing. And yeah. then now they can control behaviors. I mean, there's all sorts of, yeah, these next 10 years mm. when it comes to those sorts of things. And no matter what the issue is, if we can't sit down and sit around a table and have mm. a coffee and have a beer together and, uh, and try to work towards solutions um, in a rational way, um, especially when we're being torn apart by those entities who benefit mm. from us staying divided, it's going to be very difficult to come up with solutions to yeah. anything or to move the ball forward uh, anywhere. Uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned uh, going across the middle. Uh, So we call it in the military Mm. cross-cut targeting and probably – I would guess very few military people even know about cross-cut targeting because you you hear about the head of the snake and it's a very cool thing to say. And we all grew up in these movies where you go after that leader. And so it's that's it's that, it's that yeah. uh you know, the impact of popular culture on us as we grow older, we don't even realize. Um, but when you think it through as you as you have done, and you think about okay, you mm-hmm. got that tactical guy on the ground with the rifle that's shooting the rhino, you have these people, this demand in Asia, you have but there's this whole group of middle people. Um, and we call that cross-cut targeting. And if you go after that, mm-hmm. it makes it very difficult for those two at the top and the bottom to meet and continue this, this cycle. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I talk about it. I mentioned it in one of my books, but when I brought it up to military people, even very senior people that should know they, uh, more often than not <laughs> don't. Uh, and then the other thing you mentioned about the, <laughs> about the DEA, it was interesting after nine yeah. 11, um, you know, we were so focused in the military on the, the tactical level side of things, but, uh, moving people, became some of those same rat lines that would move drugs that, uh, would move weapons that, uh, that would move mm. illicit wildlife. So it seems like these illicit networks, there's a lot, uh, as far as moving them the same way you move a diamond or some a gold, maybe the same way that a rhino horn moves or, uh, that mm. you might be moving a, a person, human trafficking. And there's, I mean, there's all this crossover in these illicit networks, which is, is fascinating uh, to me as a human and as a, as a, as a writer, um, but, uh, so what have you, so this book came out in, uh, in 2012, uh, I think is when, yeah. they, when this published, uh, what have you been doing since then? Have you done, you've they've been working with, with traffic and then you're the director of the mm-hmm. organized crime, uh, observatory for East and Southern Africa at the global initiative against transnational organized crime, which is a l- that's a long title, right there. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough to
1: say. <laughs> a, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I struggle on some days. Yeah,
0: but uh, but I've been to the website. It's amazing. I'm going to do a deep dive in there as I do research for for future novels. Um, but what does the path look like for you after the publication of this novel? And um, and what are you doing today?
1: Yeah. So I, the the work that I did with traffic was was focused very much on Eastern and, and Southern Africa and. Um, Traffic is an organization which monitors trade and wildlife, particularly legal trade and wildlife, to some degree legal trade, too. Um, It was set up around the same time as the CITES uh, Mm -hmm. convention, uh, which governs international trade and endangered species, came into force. Um, So They do some really good on-the-ground research, looking at wildlife markets, looking at wildlife trade. I did quite a bit of work there with the team that i that i, I, I managed there, looking um, for instance, at doing interviews with poachers to get a sense of the poacher economy, how poachers work. Um, we 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 looked at at um, probably the most uh, cr- sort of clear-cut example of convergence or crossover between uh, the drugs trade and wildlife trade in in South Africa, which is the the trade in abalone, this mollusk shellfish, yeah. Uh, which is widely widely uh, traded in China, very you know um, heavily sought after, massive prices. Um, but it ties the the divers come from gang areas in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the buyers use methamphetamine as a barter, as a means of bartering. So either precursor chemicals to make methamphetamine, or they barter for for abalone with with gang bosses by providing methamphetamine. Um, And it's led to to a massive drug epidemic in in parts of of Cape Town. Um, Huge mess problem. And and, Africa has a growing mess problem. Um, So working on those kinds of issues and also looking at, you know, um, how do we find community conservation solutions? Because ultimately conservation, again, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist without people. Um, You've got people living around national parks. You've got... um, You've got areas or habitat which is decreasing in Africa. So how do we create a balance where we've got people who can benefit from conservation, who can, who can live around national parks, but or benefit from the fruits of those national parks uh, in a way that can uh, you know, end up preventing poaching, as we're um, something again, which is quite worrying, given you know the the economic fallout of the yeah. of the pandemic. Um, you know, um, Kruger National Park again um, seeing massive uptick in snaring uh, bushmeat poaching by people who are just simply looking for for food yeah. uh, to put on the table. Um, so, trying to find those solutions, I, and I, you know, I think I think ultimately, you know. The, the the solution that exists or one of the key solutions to, to dealing with poaching lies with uh, rural communities who live around national parks and can protect those parks, but they need to benefit from those yeah. parks. Um, and we've got to find ways of doing that. Um, then, you know, beyond that, so the, the global initiative where I currently work now, so the global initiative was set up around... Oddly enough, around the time this book came out, um, I went to their their launch meeting in New York, uh, 2013, uh, at the UN in New York. Um, the global initiative was set up at a time when there was a lot of debate, a lot of discussion going around. How do we, how do we tackle organized crime in a different way? Yeah. You know, we've been fighting the war on drugs for 30, 40 years. We've been, you know, um, going essentially doing the same thing over and over again. Um, it, to, to try and combat no. organized crime. So how do we come up with, with innovative approaches? Um, so, you know, that's the one element. So we work with communities on the ground. Uh, as another side, we've got a thing called the Resilience Fund, which supports uh, communities and areas that have been hard hit by, by gang violence, organized crime. So in Mexico, uh, we work with, with families of people who've disappeared there during the drug wars. Um, we, uh, you know, uh, 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 parents and mothers whose, whose sons have been uh, kidnapped by, by drug gangs or have been murdered by drug gangs. Uh, we work with, with communities in, in, so, in southern Africa, um, supporting people doing research around violence, around political assassinations and hits. Um, we Similarly, we've been doing quite a lot of work recently in, in northern Mozambique around the uh, Islamic State-aligned uh, insurgency there. And looking at at those flows. Um, so Mozambique, just to briefly sort of uh, explain, northern Mozambique uh, sits on on some ancient trade routes which have existed for for centuries along the Swahili coast. A very active trade, uh, dhow trade, you know, small dows mm-hmm. moving up and down the coast, up and down the Makran coast, moving. Uh, various items, but it's also a drop-off point for significant quantities of heroin and, and methamphetamine, increasingly coming from Afghanistan mm. via Iran into northern Mozambique. Uh, so we've been tracking that for a very long time, um, and then we've been working—you know—building up a sense, uh, a database, building up information on um, on uh, drug prices, drug quality, the types of, of narcotics that we're seeing. Uh, doing sort of almost monitoring, which which many governments are not doing, um, and what we're seeing is pretty disturbing in terms of use of heroin and mess uh, in in small town uh, places. You know, not heroin previously was mainly big cities, but now you're finding it at truck stops. You're finding sort of dirty mess in Africa uh, in places where you'd never see mess before. Um, so a lot of work on that. We've been doing some some work in Somalia too around uh, armed shipments, weapons that are flowing from uh, Iran into Yemen into the conflict in Yemen, which are being rerouted into into Afghanistan, I mean into into um, Somalia. Uh, those weapons are being rerouted in Somalia and the potential regional threat that that poses too with Ethiopia, which is now caught, in, you know, in the middle of its own uh, civil strife. Um, so it keeps us busy, um, and out of trouble most of the time. (laughs) Wow. There's so, there's so many books there, uh, that you could
0: write. I mean, there's, I I hope you delve into one of those subjects and, uh, and write another, another book because I mean, so talented and, and it's, uh, like this one's fascinating and I, I hope you, you take, Mm. do, do something in the, in the future. Is that one of the ideas you're batting around? Uh, so
1: yeah, I've, I've I've got a few. I think it's I, I think I'm at the point now. where I've got a short list. And okay. I, I'm I'm sort of battling between ideas to go. Mm, where are we leaning? So right. yeah, but it's uh, it. I've been mulling a, a couple for yeah. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to doing another one. Yeah, absolutely good. One a decade is that the is that the pace that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we
0: can look forward to? Or? I think.
1: I think I, I, think I need to work on that. A bit. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> maybe get it up to, you know, I mean, what you've done, what, five books since 2018. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe that's something I can name.
0: <laughs> That'd be great. Cause I, I love this. I mean, it's <laughs> such a great book and, and thank you for what you're, you're doing now. Like I said, that website, um, uh, I'm going to go do some deep diving in there for, for research for future mm. novels and, uh, you're just doing some amazing things. So, uh, so thank you for, for writing this and uh and Mm. and thank you for for the work you're doing now and uh you know i often get that question about hey who from people in in this country um how can i help uh combat rhino approaching in, in Africa. Mm. And there are so many different organizations out there and some of them change and yep. then some of them disappear. And it's, so it's very hard for me to point towards one or two, uh, to at mm. least point people in the right direction, but have there been a, a few that maybe you've, you've worked with or heard of, or know as legitimate, um, where if someone wants to, wants to help out that they can research a little further? Uh-
1: yeah, look, I, you know, I, I generally, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of pinpoint one particular one. Um, I generally sort of advise people to, to do a bit of background research, look at the, the organization, see the kind of work they're doing, the quality of work. Um, and then decide. I mean, I unfortunately there are quite a few sort of smaller fly by night yeah. groups, scam groups. But there's some, you know, they're an amazing organizations. I mean, um, Traffic, which I used to work for, they do really interesting work monitoring trade. Uh there's Save the Rhino, who've been working very actively for, for years, the International Rhino Foundation. And then you've got, you know, entities like the Wildlife Justice Commission, the Environmental Investigation Agency. Um, who are actively doing investigations and, and amazing investigations in many cases into networks that are, are operating. Um, so those are some of the, the, the you know the bigger ones that are working there. Um, you know you've got others, the Low Rhino Trust in, in Zimbabwe, who uh, you know for more than twenty years now have basically been keeping the wolf the wolves at bay and and saving you know Zimbabwe's rhino population. Um, so, yeah, some, some really remarkable um, organizations. And, you know, I think that's the one thing, you know, I think the discussion we've had has been somewhat dark in some ways. I mean, this is quite a depressing <laughs> discussion, but I, but but the thing that gives me heart is you've got, you know, these some of these really, truly amazing people out there who are putting themselves on the line, who put themselves out there um you know who are dogmatically going at it day in and day out they've been doing it for decades in some cases. who have devoted their entire lives um, to to this this kind of cause. Um, you know, and ultimately, I mean I think if we if we can't save the rhino, you know, something like as charismatic a species as the rhino, then what can we actually save? You know, and what 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 does that say about us as people in you know in terms of how do we deal with the challenges that we that we face globally and 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 so many challenges and so many challenges that are emerging every day. Yeah. No, very true. I
0: try to keep uh yeah, I try try to stay hopeful. Yeah, it it, it, it's tough when you're getting bombarded with so many uh, you know, negative uh uh, inputs every day because of how we're, we're connected. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, but I I try to remain hopeful, but, uh, but thank you for remaining hopeful, having gone so deep into a lot of these things (laughs) that are very, very dark, uh, always about the people. There we go. It's always about the people. It's true. Uh, People in the, in relationships and hopefully moving that, that ball forward and, uh, making it, uh, doing it better for the next generation. But, uh, Man, thank you so much. And please don't make me wait another decade for another, another book. A, and, uh, I, uh, but please. I'll do my awesome. best. Yeah, thank you. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. A couple of things to go over here. One is this TG Knives. This just arrived from Scotland. Uh, Tom Garbett Knives up there. You may have seen one of his knives used by Christian Craighead. And if you don't know who that is, Google it. A lot of very cool pictures will pop up. Very interesting backstory. Um, cool guy. Uh, anyway, this here is one that Tom sent over from Scotland. And this is the Sika knife. Uh, he has a few different blades out there. And man, these things are awesome. Check that out. Nice. Tom, thank you so much for sending this. Uh, awesome. This thing is just legit. Thank you amazing. All right. What else do I have here? Uh, this book, look at this camel trophy book right here. If you've been following me for a while, you know, that I love what is now called overlanding. Um, but this is so cool. I was always fascinated with, uh, camel trophy growing up. And, uh, I think it went from 1980 to to 2000. Um, and, uh, this is a book, like a coffee table book that has all these amazing photos. Um, yeah, look at that. (laughs) I always wanted to do this growing up. Remember in high school, I wanted to do one of these trips. They don't do it anymore, unfortunately, but maybe we can bring it back. Very cool. And let's see at the beginning here, it says, between 19, 1980 and 2000, Camel Trophy took more than 500 amateur adventurers from 35 different countries on extraordinary and challenging journeys through some of the world's most interesting places. On most of these events, teams drove specially prepared Land Rovers, taking them to the limit and beyond in some of the harshest environments known to motorized vehicles. Yeah, this thing. Very cool. All right, what else? And this. What? Oh yeah, that's an action figure. <laughs> so Patriot Force, uh, these things are awesome. They do action figures for veterans and then they put them on eBay, auction them off and 25% of the proceeds go to the foundation of that veteran's choice. So for mine, it is a Rescue 22 Foundation, uh, foundation that provides fully trained service dogs for veterans suffering the physical and emotional trauma of the battlefield. So, look at that. Looks just like me, huh? How about that. Oh, like a little GI Joe card on the back. Sick. All right, that is it for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. Follow Julian Rademeyer on Twitter at Julian, J U L I A N R A D E M E Y E R. And also go to the website for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Link to that will be in the show notes. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. You can also go to jackcarusa.com for the merch and official jackcar.com for the blog, and more about the books and everything else. You can pre-order in the blood right now. Until the next time, take care. Get this book. Read this book. Stay strong. Keep fighting.